Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And so the question I'm going to begin with is a huge question, but it's what this entire section is about, and that is, what is worship? It's a huge question. And you may not know where the word worship comes from. It comes from the Old English, worth-ship, the worth of something. And it kind of morphed into worship. That's why we call it worship. And so it's one of those things that it's, it's really hard to define. So I'm going to give you a couple of definitions from some people that I thought brought up some good definitions of worship. A.W. Tozer has said this, Worship of the living God is man's whole reason for existence. That is why we are born and that is why we're born again from above. That is why there's also the church. The Christian church exists to worship God first of all. Everything else must come second or third or fourth or fifth. Would you agree with this statement? Amen. What's, our, what's the first statement in our mission statement as a church? We exist to display God's glory. It's the most important thing we do. Scottish pastor James Stewart. I like his definition. Worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. All aspects of who you are, your mind, your will, your emotions, your everything. So, worship is giving ourselves fully to God. So, here's another question. Can we perform acts of proper worship, but with the wrong attitude? So we can actually do the right types of things in worship, but do it with a wrong attitude. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, says this about worship. Worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of His worth. This cannot be done by mere acts of duty. It can only be done when spontaneous affections arise in the heart. It follows that forms of worship should provide two things, channels for the mind to apprehend the truth of God's reality and channels for the heart to respond to the beauty of that truth. I like his definition because it involves both. We want our minds to be engaged with who God is, but we also want our hearts to be engaged. So here's the fundamental question. Does it matter how we worship when we gather together corporately on the Lord's Day on a Sunday morning? Does it matter? Okay. I think you would all say it matters. How does God view our worship when we gather? Have you ever thought about that? What are some of the first things that you're tempted to say after a worship service when you're driving home? What do you want for lunch? What do you want for lunch? Okay. <laughs> Sometimes we're quick to evaluate the worship service. You know, the praise team was kind of off today. I didn't particularly like that song. Pastor Sean's sermon was flat. Nobody talked to me. Um, there didn't just seem to be, there wasn't a good feeling there. How do we often, everything that we talk about worship is what, how it didn't affect me. 
And we can go away from a worship service so concerned about how I got something out of it that we never stop and think, well, what did God get out of it? Did God receive our best worship? And so here's the thesis of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Here's the main point. It is this, and it's going to take us two nights to look at this because I wanted to really spend some time on this. Um, And we're a little bit ahead on where I wanted to be, so I felt like we could stop and take some more time. Here it is. When we gather together for corporate worship, we must worship God with awe and reverence. We must. Now, let's read together Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And I want to remind you that in all of chapter 4, the name God was not mentioned once. In chapter 5, I want you to look at how many times God's name is mentioned. So we're shifting to life under the sun in a secular world to how do we interact with God in corporate worship when we gather together as His people. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that what they're doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but it is God the one you must fear. Okay, what I want to show you guys is what's called an inclusio. Or, this is the official word for it, it's called an inclusio. Or, you guys might like the, the old, a better term, I'm giving you guys like the theological term, inclusio. Bookend is probably the word you're probably more familiar with. Or, sandwich. What do you have in a sandwich? Piece of bread on one end, piece of bread on the other end and a bunch of meat in the middle, right? What do you have on a bookend? You have a book on one end, a book on the other end, and a bunch of stuff in the middle. Okay, this section is bookend by two things that basically state, it states it differently, but it's basically the same thing. How does, the, how does verse 1 start? It's a command. What's the command? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So guard your steps. Okay, so bookend number 1 is guard your steps. What's the very last statement? What's the very last command in verse 7? God is the one you must fear. So you must fear God. So these two bookends kind of frame the entire section here about worship. And they're really saying the same thing. How do you guard your steps when you go in the house of God? You fear God. How do you fear God? You guard your steps when you go into the house of God. And so what he's going to unpack for us are three different ways that we guard our steps and fear God when we go to worship. And we're only going to look at number one tonight. We're going to look at two and three next week. Okay? Think about guarding your steps. Think about what God said to Moses when he met him at the burning bush. Exodus 3, 5. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is 
holy ground. Do you ever wonder when you walk into a worship service that you're walking, not because it's a building or because it's necessarily a sanctuary, but do you ever have the attitude when you walk in that I'm walking into a worship service and there's something holy and reverent about this? Sometimes our culture today, church culture, is very chummy and folksy and very, um, we've lost the reverence of God. And I'm not saying we come into church all sour and dour, we don't have, we don't have fun and we don't, we don't engage each other, but we have to remember what it is we're doing when we come into corporate worship. Okay? So, in that historical context, he says, guard your steps when you go where? To the house of God. We don't go to the house of God anymore because there's not a temple. Back then, when Solomon was writing this, it was the temple. Who built the temple? Solomon. So, we have to ask the question, what happened during the worship in the temple in the Old Testament? I think it's very important for us to understand what was happening in that original context. Because what I want to show you tonight, here's what we're going to do, here's where we're going here. What was worship like in the temple? What was worship like in the synagogue? What was worship like in the early church? And let's match up to see if what we're doing today matches up. Does that sound fair enough? Okay, so what happened in the temple? During the reign of King Hezekiah, they rediscovered the law of God, and there was a major revival in the nation of Israel, and they restored temple worship to the way it was meant to be. So in Second Chronicles chapter 29, verses 20 through 30, we get a picture of what temple worship is supposed to be like. So we're going to be turning a lot of a lot of different places in our Bibles tonight. So go back to Second Chronicles. If Solomon tells us to guard our steps, if he's telling the original audience here, the original audience, before it applies to us, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To them, going into the house of God was going into the temple. So we have to understand, well, what was going on in the temple? And Second Chronicles chapter 29 gives us a really good picture of what was going on. So Second Chronicles 29, 20 through 30. Did I say thoity? That was weird. Uh, 30. That sounds like Bugs Bunny. All right. 2 Chronicles 29, 20 through 30. I want you to just look at what the worship's going on in the temple. Everybody there? 2 Chronicles 29, 20. Then Hezekiah, the king, rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. Okay, see the same language there? The house of the Lord, the temple. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for sin offerings for the kingdom and for the sanctuary for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs, and their blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with the blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through, this pro through his prophets. The Levites stood with instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. 
Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offerings be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offerings began, the song to the Lord began also. And the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly worshipped. And the singers sang. And the trumpets sounded. And all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves in worship. And Hezekiah the king and the officials command the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness and they bowed down and worshipped. Now what's going on in the temple? A lot of blood, right? The blood of animals was sacrificed as an atonement to propitiate God's wrath. How many times do you see animals getting slaughtered here? These burnt offerings, and they're making atonement. So blood, atonement, sacrificial system. People saying corporately to the Lord. With what? Both their voices and instruments. And you had worship leaders, didn't you? Who were the worship leaders? The Levitical priests, the Levites. They were the worship leaders. So people were singing. Instruments were being played. Everyone participated. You see anybody sitting over in a corner being like, I don't like that song. That priest is singing off key. He blew the trumpet wrong. I mean, nobody's complaining about the worship in the temple. Everyone participated. They bowed in humble adoration to God for his forgiveness of sin through a sacrificial substitute. The people brought offerings to the Lord with willing hearts. You go on to verse 31. Then Hezekiah said, You have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the Lord, to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. And all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. So they were giving of offerings. And then look at verse 36. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people for the thing came about suddenly. There was an overwhelming joy and generosity. One thing this doesn't tell you, but we also find out does happen, was that the priests would be responsible for preaching and teaching God's law, God's word. So what do we see in Old Testament temple worship? A focus on blood atonement, singing, prayers, joy, Giving of offerings. Does that sound familiar? Besides the fact that we don't sacrifice animals today. Okay. Something happened in Israel's history that caused them to go into exile. King Nebuchadnezzar came in with his armies and ransacked the temple in Jerusalem. It was destroyed. Now, if your temple's destroyed... Can you do temple worship anymore? If you're carted off thousands of miles away and you're left for 70 years in captivity, can you do temple worship anymore? No. If you're a good Jew, what do you have to do? Worship the Lord. So how do you do that without a temple? This is where the synagogue came into place. The synagogue started during the exile. They still had to worship. They still had to have a church, but there was not one central location in Jerusalem where they could all go. So they're in captivity. What ended up happening was there would be, if there was a group of probably 10 to 15 to 20 men in a city, they could create a synagogue, which was what was a local church. Okay. So when Jesus goes into the synagogues, during Jesus' time, there's still, there's still the temple, but there's also synagogues. The synagogues haven't gone out of style. So the word synagogue 
means to assemble together. It's the concept of a local church. A Jewish local church during the time of the exile. And then when they were allowed to come back, they just stayed with them. Even after they rebuilt the temple, the synagogue system still stayed with them. So when Jesus teaches in the synagogues in Galilee and in Nazareth, what was going on during Jesus' time during the worship service? Well, let me tell you what happened during synagogue worship. What happened in the synagogue? The service started with an opening prayer of blessing by the synagogue ruler, the leader, the rabbi, whoever was the, the leader of that local synagogue, the local pastor, if you will, of that synagogue, him and the elders. They would sing psalms. They didn't have praise songs back then. All they had were psalms. So they sang the psalms. Then they would recite the Shema. What's the Shema? Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your Lord your God is one. You shall worship the Lord with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Everybody would recite that scripture together. Then they would stand and pray the 18 blessings or the 18 benedictions. So they would stand and they would pray these 18 prayers, these blessings to the Lord. Then there would be the first reading of Scripture from the first part of the Old Testament, from the law. This would either be from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. Something from the first five books they would read. Then... There would be the second reading of scriptures. This was normally from the prophets, the second half of the Bible. Then the rabbi would preach an expository sermon on the text that was read. He would explain it. He would preach. And then he would do a closing benediction. Does that sound familiar? What did they do in the synagogue? They sang... They read scripture, they prayed, there was preaching, and there was scripture reading. And it was corporate. Everyone was gathered together. It was structured. Okay. Now, where do you think we get our worship from? How do you think the New Testament believers worshipped? They borrowed from the temple. They borrowed from the synagogue because the first church was Jewish. And so the pattern of the first church was patterned a lot after the synagogue system. And so you've got some questions about, okay, how did this carry on into the New Testament church? Well, if you look at Acts chapter 2, it, it tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So there's teaching going on. Fellowship. Breaking of bread. That breaking of bread was not in the temple worship or the synagogue worship. Why was breaking of bread not there yet? Because Jesus... Lord's Supper hadn't been instituted yet. Only Jesus had to die on the cross first in order for there to be the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Where are they worshiping? While they have an opportunity to. In the temple, but also in their homes. What are they doing in the temple? Are they, being, are they doing Jewish worship or are they doing Christian worship? They're doing Christian worship. 
they're not they're not going into the temple and like sacrificing bulls and rams because that would be that would be that would not be good because Jesus has already died on the cross for our sins but they still tied themselves to the public worship okay what does Paul say in Colossians 3:16 let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom how singing psalms hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God so what do we do in the New Testament? We sing what? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What are psalms? We don't sing psalms in our church. Some of the more reformed churches, just all they do is sing psalms. The psalms to meter. Do we sing hymns? Do we sing spiritual songs? That's like praise songs, okay? So we are commanded to sing, to do the Lord's Supper, to preach, to teach, to give. Paul gives a charge to Timothy. He says, until I come, devote yourself to three things, Timothy, as a pastor, in the worship service. These are the top three important things you need to do as a pastor. Number one, the public reading of Scripture. Two, exhortation. Three, teaching. Now, why did Paul command Timothy to do those three things? Scripture reading, expository preaching. Where did it come from? It came from the synagogue. Everything that the early church did that Paul commanded Timothy to do was borrowed from the synagogue system. And so scholars would say, like oh, Hughes Olaf and Old, who's written this massive volume on Christian preaching and teaching in, in church history, has said this, quote, No doubt the practice of the synagogue was continued in the church. And this passage from 1 Timothy is the strongest possible evidence for this. At the center of Christian preaching from the very beginning was the exposition of the public reading of Scripture. Now, why do we read Scripture first and then preach second? Ever thought about that? To give you the basis of what Okay. To set the tone. When we start our worship services at Emmanuel, how do we start them? Every week. I mean, we start it with the song so you guys can wake up and get in there. Um, but whatever elder is on duty that morning, what's the very first thing he does? Remain standing for the reading of God's word. And we read scripture from the very beginning. And that sets the stage for what? We are gathered here under the authority of the Scripture and prayer, okay? Before I preach what I normally do, read the Scripture, and then we explain it, and then we preach it, okay? So this was borrowed from the synagogue system. So we don't have a sacrificial system today with temple worship, and we don't have synagogues. We are the temple, so we don't have a literal structure to come to as a temple today in worship. But we do gather as God's people on the Lord's Day. And we are the temple of God. And we do the same things people of God have done for centuries. It's not much different. What do we do when we gather? Do we sing songs? Did they sing songs back then? Do we pray? Did they pray back then during their worship services? Do we give offerings? Did they give offerings back then during their worship services? Yeah. Do we read scripture? Do they read scripture back then during their worship services? Do we do fellowship? Do they do fellowship back then during their worship services? Do we listen to sermons? 
Sometimes? No. We listen to ser- is there preaching? I shouldn't say do we listen to sermons. Is there preaching of sermons? And hopefully the listening of sermons? Did they do that back then? Okay. What I'm going to introduce to you guys is maybe something you've never heard of or thought about, but it's, a, it's an interesting discussion that's been around, and it kind of came out of the Protestant Reformation. And it's basically the whole issue of the regulative principle versus the normative principle of worship. And anybody ever heard of the regulative versus the normative principle of worship? Anybody ever heard of this? Okay, so it's all brand new. Okay. Here's what... Okay, so let me just kind of give some labels to this. The regulative principle was what John Calvin argued for. The normative principle was what Martin Luther argued for. So it's kind of a battle between Calvinists and Lutherans. So, and then us Baptists, we figure out where we're going to fit in all of this. But here's what... The regulative principle is. The regulative principle says this. The corporate worship of God is to be founded upon specific directions of Scripture. In other words, let me say it a different way. Nothing is allowed in a worship service except for that which is explicitly commanded in Scripture. So if it's not in Scripture, you should not do it in a worship service. So this was what, like for example, John Calvin said, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned in the Word. The London Baptist Confession of 1689, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and is so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed by the Holy Scripture. Now back then, what was their big issue? We don't want to have icons in our worship service where we have statues of saints that we worship. Okay, what's going on during the Protestant Reformation? It's a battle with the Roman Catholic Church. And so the Protestants said, listen, if we are going to worship, we do not allow anything in our worship service that's not explicitly prescribed by God. Okay, what's the normative principle? The normative principle says, anything not expressly forbidden in Scripture can be used in corporate worship. You see the difference between the two of them? So let me give you a modern-day example. A person that holds to the regulative principle would say, the only things you can have in a worship service are what we've just seen. Prayers, reading of Scriptures, singing of psalms, giving of offerings, preaching, fellowship, and maybe some testimonies. A normative person would say, The Bible doesn't explicitly say that drama is bad, so we can maybe add drama into a worship service. Or we can add laser lights into a worship service. Or we can have a fog machine in our worship service. Or we can, you see what I'm saying? They're like, we can bring some things in to help worship as long as they don't go against Scripture, but the regulative says, no, you can only do what's prescribed in Scripture. So I want to just throw that out there and say, well, what's your opinion on that? Or have you ever thought about that? How should the, the worship of the church be regulated? Should there be, is the regular principle too legalistic? And is the normative principle open itself up to too many weird things going on? Those are the, those are the, that's the real battle. And I'll give you my argument after I listen to what you guys have to say, because I don't want to give it away. What, what's your thoughts on this? Maybe you never thought about this. Does God care about how we worship? <clears throat> Should we introduce anything in the worship service that's not in the Bible? I think the normative, Sean, would be they could put too many things in the worship service that would take away from reading of the scriptures. Okay, so it can be abused. Yeah. So instead of having a scripture reading and a sermon, you have a skit 
and maybe a couple of video clips, and then maybe a guy jump off stage on a motorcycle as a way to do a... I mean, some churches do that, or they have a cage match fight or something. Or they have the, like you say, they have the fog machines. And the fog machines, and then everything else is relegated. We'll do a five-minute prayer, we'll do a ten-minute sermon, but the rest of it's all entertainment. So that's the danger of the, of the normative principle, is that what you're saying? Okay. Well, on the other hand, the regulative service becomes so stifling okay. that you don't allow for the Holy Spirit to, to move in your service. And, you know, it, it, it's so regulated okay. that back to the time frame thing, youth prayers this long, right. singings this long, worship services this, or, you know, the, the preaching okay. is this long, and we have to be out by this time. Okay, so the, the regulative principle can be abused to the other extreme to right. where we're so regulated that there's no room for freedom exactly. at all. We're so regimented to a liturgy. Yeah, okay, Risa. That wouldn't draw in your younger crowd, so maybe if you combined both. <gasps> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking with you, Risa. <laughs> no, that's what a lot of people... Uh, so, uh, a reason I want you to think about... The, within, you know, you have to be... You can't, like, go overboard and just... Pull okay, but who makes that decision? Well, exactly. To, what, to you, overboard may be... Like, what's overboard for you may, like, totally offend me. Right. And what may be overboard for me may be, like, way too much for you. So then it becomes kind of subjective. I'm just kind of bringing that up. Okay. I don't I think uh, Scott, it, it uh, matters to the Lord because he's it, not a flashy person. It does matter to the Lord, is what you're saying? Or it doesn't? It does. It does matter, okay. Good. Because he's not a flashy person. He just wants what he has been teaching to be taught to us Okay. Now. Did you guys hear that good quote? God's not a flashy person. He doesn't, doesn't need to be impressed with... So, uh, yes, Deb. I've seen some really non-conventional things reach people for Christ, though. In a worship service? Yeah, where ordinarily it might not. Like he was saying, if it was regulated or stuffy, they would have just tuned out. Okay. You see how this can be a divisive issue when you think of it? It's been like Luther and Calvin kind of, they weren't contemporaries, but their followers kind of had these arguments throughout church history. Um, if you go to like an extreme charismatic, free flowing, all no holds barred service, that's like extreme normative principle. Everything goes. If you go to like an extreme like covenant Presbyterian church where all they do is sing psalms, they don't even sing praise or hymns; they just sing psalms. That's like the extreme regulative. So, where do I land on this? I am a Guarded regulative principle with freedom and really careful how far you go over to normative. Is that what I'm... So if you've been around a manual long enough, you probably figured it out. Um, there, there's not a lot of... Devi- there's not a... <coughs> what I'm saying is if you look at these elements that we have in our service, we do sing songs, but we don't just sing psalms. What do we sing? A combination of all different types of songs, all right? So are we so regulative that we're not going to have drums or praise team or we're just going to have, like, you know, a Benedictine monk choir? I mean, so, okay, so we, we've said, okay, we can have praise team. It can, you know, the, the tempo of the music can be, I'm not so concerned about the style of music as I am the content of music. Okay, do we give offerings? Do we pray? Do we read scripture? Do we have fellowship? Do we listen? To, most of that stuff goes on. Have we at times had drama at our church? Yes. 
Is there anything else that we've added? Like, I don't think we've ever done creative movement. <laughs> at least not at this church. Because it's never really any good. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so... Put in perspective, because are we coming to worship God, or are we coming to see your granddaughter dance? Okay. Are we coming to worship God, or are we coming to see somebody in their drama? You know, um, you could even go with the special music, because as a music person, I've seen people get up there, and it's about me on Sunday morning getting to sing a solo in front of the church, versus me worshiping God, and hopefully you are blessed by that also. So I think I think it comes down to the focus. I mean, because yeah. you can have you can be regulatory and and take the focus put off God. Yeah. Because you, Sean, you didn't read out of the King James version. Like, You're using that ESV, which we know is just. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, because we set up those regulative rules, or you can do it just. So it comes down to what is the focus? Yeah. Where where does that focus land? We made it just one minute, Reese. We made a decision a long time ago not to do special music. And uh, I grew up in churches doing special music all the time, and we just don't do it here. And the reason we don't is because we don't want to... I personally, I've seen that where if one person sings... Like when our praise team does a special, when they introduce a new song, how do they do it? The whole team does it. And I had a woman that visited our church. This was a true story. I think it was right when we came to the new building. Uh, she's no longer... She, she came for like two weeks, and she came up after the service, and she says... I really want to be a member of this church, and will you let me sing special music next week? Oh. And I said, oh, number, number one, there's a process of membership. Number two, we don't do special music. She's like, what do you mean you don't do special music? I'm like this gifted singer, and every church I've been in, I've done special music. And I said, well, this may not be the church for you. I was just like being real honest with her. And so she never came back. But that was her attitude of, you know, when I come to this church, I'm going to do special music. And I was kind of like, okay. Risa. Well, there's other times for that because I mean we've got the kids do their little skits sometimes, sure. or there's, you know, there's other times for that. Yeah, that I, I think there's got to be order to the worship, mm -hmm. and the elements have to be biblical. Mm -hmm. But I also think that you need to have freedom for the Holy Spirit to move, mm -hmm. as long as you're as long as you're not going. I just think the Bible teaches order. Doesn't First Corinthians talk about do all things orderly? Mm -hmm. um, Decently and in orderly, um, you, you want it to be understandable. Um, you want it to be Christ honoring. You want it to be biblical, and you don't want it to be confusing. And you want it to be glorifying to God. Now, the problem with worship in corporate is what are you dealing with? Three hundred people's preferences, and that's a hard pill to swallow at times because. There's particular songs that we sing that don't float my boat as much, but I know they float other people's boats. And I'm, you know what I mean by that. It's like, like Dawn's like, oh, I love that song. I'm like, yeah, it's okay. And then there's like, I love that song. She's like, yeah, that's okay. And so we talk about, and, and so there's certain songs we're going to sing that not everybody's going to like. And so there's going to be certain things that we do that, and so are we up there trying to perform for everybody here? Or who's our audience? God. And so part of being a church family is we've got to all come together and what? Guard our steps and fear God when we come into corporate worship. So I throw that out to you to say that um, 
It's been a battle in church history, the regulative versus normative principle. Maybe you've never thought about it, but it does help you kind of think about what really should go on in a worship service and what shouldn't. And, what, and how do you make that decision? And what's your basis for it? Okay? Because Hebrews chapter 12, 28 and 29, this is New Testament, says this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God, what kind of worship? Acceptable worship with what? Reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. So there seems to be a push in the Bible for acceptable worship. Acceptable to who? To us or to acceptable to God. And it's, it's couched in these terms of with reverence and awe. Okay, so then that's the question. Guard your steps as you enter the house of God. You must fear God. Writer of Hebrews says it the same way. Offer acceptable worship with awe and reverence. So then the question is, okay, what then is that? What is acceptable worship in God's house when we gather for corporate worship? And he's going to give us three specific things in this Ecclesiastes passage. So let's turn back to Ecclesiastes. And let's look at, we're just going to look at issue one tonight because I really have a heartburn on this one. Not a heartburn, but a passion for this one. And so, since I'm teaching the class, we can hang out on my passions. Is that okay? <laughs> you have no choice. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Issue number one. And it's right from the text. Our first priority in corporate worship should be to listen to the word of God. What does he say there in verse one? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to what? Listen is what? Better than, literal Hebrew there, more acceptable than to offer the sacrifice of fools. When you look all throughout the Bible, when God's people are gathered corporately together, almost always what's the focus on? Is it the focus on talking or listening? Listening. Deuteronomy 4.10. Moses reminds them how on that great day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. That's Mount Sinai. The Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them, what? Hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Why did the people gather at the base of Mount Sinai? So they could hear. Deuteronomy 5.1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. What did Jesus often say in his parables? One example in Matthew eleven fifteen: He who has ears, let him hear. We looked at this on Sunday morning. John eight forty seven. What did Jesus say to those Jews that weren't listening? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear him is that you're not of God. What else did he say? You cannot bear to hear my words. What does Paul say in Romans 10, 17? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And then Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's a comparison in this verse. Listening is better than sacrificing in the sacrifice of fools. And we're going to talk about what that means. Literally, it's better than, more acceptable than. Okay, 
So, the issue is not sacrifice, because in the Bible they were called to sacrifice. They were called to bring an offering. They were called to worship. How does he define it there? It's the sacrifice of what? Fools. For they do not know that they're doing is evil. So here's the sacrifice of fools question. Can you go through all the motions in a worship service and still not worship? Solomon would say that's the, that's the sacrifice of a fool. You're doing the right thing, but you're doing it the wrong way. So can you sing? Can you pray? Can you listen to sermons? Can you fellowship? Can you do all those things in a worship service? Can you go through the motions but never actually worship? Very easily, right? Let's talk about two guys or two stories where that happened. So I told you we're going to be turning all over the Bible. Go to Leviticus 10, 1 through 7. And I want to show you about the way worship was done in the wrong way and what happened. Leviticus 10, 1 through 7. So don't name your children after these two guys, okay? Everybody there? Leviticus 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. These are Aaron's sons. Who was Aaron? He was the high priest, the high Levitical priest. Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid censer on it and offered, my translation says, unauthorized fire before the Lord. Does yours say strange fire, unauthorized, or? Unauthorized. What was the other ones? Unholy. Unholy. Profane. Profane. Okay. So what were they doing? They were offering a sacrifice, but it was not in the right way, which the Lord had not commanded them. A fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now, were they doing anything wrong? (coughs) Trick question. They were leading in worship. What were they doing? They were going to the altar to put incense on. And what does it say? They offered it in an unauthorized, profane manner. So were they worshiping? Were they going through the motions of, were they going through the motions of worship? Were they doing it in the right way? What happened to them? They died. Okay. Now that's Old Testament. I'm not saying if you show up and have a bad attitude in church that God's going to strike you dead. He may. I don't know. But I'm just saying that this is an Old Testament thing here, okay? So that's Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. They, they, were, they were going through the motions of worship. They were doing the physical act of worshiping, but they were doing it in the wrong way. Okay, what about King Saul? You remember him? Turn to 1 Samuel 15. First Samuel 15, this is where the Lord rejects him. And just to kind of, um, um, let's pick up in, well, let's pick up in verse 10. First Samuel 15, 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. 
And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul come, came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Solomon said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me. I brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and auction, and the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord... Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is a sin of divination, and presumption is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul had first of all, Saul disobeyed the command of the Lord. And what did he end up doing? He set up a monument to himself, and he actually became like a priest and started doing the sacrifices, which he was not allowed to do. And he blamed it on the people. And what did Samuel say to him? The Lord has rejected you. So was he doing worship through the right motions, but with the wrong attitude? Okay? So, here's the question. When we come into corporate worship, what's more important? What we have to say or what God has to say? What God has to say. And so what does God have to say in a worship service? What God has to say comes through His Word. And, and most importantly, His preached Word. So there is an importance, I think, in corporate worship, part of drawing near and guarding your steps and listening and having a proper attitude in worship is sitting under the authority of the preached Word. Now, let's look at a New Testament passage that I think is very, very important on this. And let's go to 2 Timothy. I told you we'd be all over the Bible tonight, which is good. Get you, get you turning all over the place. Very famous passage of Scripture here, but very, very important. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We've got some very key theological teaching on the nature of Scripture in these passages. Okay, so 2 Timothy 3.16. All, does your say all? Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what's the nature of Scripture? It's breathed out. It's God's very word. It's profitable, it's sufficient, it's effective. It's going to equip the man of, of God, particularly the pastor here, Timothy, but all Christians, it's going to equip you for every good work because of the very nature of what Scripture is. It's the 
inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. And so if that's what it is, if it's the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God that's sufficient for training us, then what are we supposed to do with that word? Well, keep reading. Go into chapter 4. What does Paul say? Right on the heels of the nature of Scripture in chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance in his, in his kingdom, preach little stories about yourself. Is that what it says? Preach the word. Now, what word has he just talked about in context? What's the word he's talking about? Right back up to the all Scripture. So when Paul commands Timothy to preach the word in context, it's the all God-breathed Scripture. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So because of the very nature of Scripture itself, as authoritative, inspired Word of God, it must be read and preached in the corporate gathering as a means of God strengthening and challenging His people. Now I'm going to give you some quotes from some people, because I think they're good quotes. Walt Kaiser, he's written a really good book toward an exegetical theology. I don't expect you to read it. It's a, it's a pastor, preacher book. But here's what he said. Where has the prophetic note in preaching gone? Where is the sense of authority and mission previously associated with the biblical word? One of the most depressing spectacles in the church today is her lack of power. At the heart of this problem is an impotent pulpit. Agree or disagree? Okay. John MacArthur. Quote, Evangelical preaching ought to reflect our conviction that God's word is infallible and inerrant. Too often it does not. In fact, there is a discernible trend in contemporary evangelicalism away from biblical preaching and a drift towards an experience-centered, pragmatic, topical approach in the pulpit. Peter Adam, Australian guy, written a really good book, Speaking God's Words, wrote this. Because, he's talking about scripture here, because they are words that God has spoken, they have all the power of God, the speaker, behind them and within them. And talk about roles as pastors. Our role is not to make God's word powerful through our speaking, but to help people recognize the power and significance of those words. And what does Isaiah 55, 10-11 say? For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return... There, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty or void, as some translations say, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And then Greg Allison, professor at Southern Seminary, where I graduated from, said this, the church must proclaim clearly, urgently, and persuasively the word of God without confusion, without change, without compromise as its first order of business. I love that quote. Without change, without confusion, and without compromise as the first order of business. And I think that's what Solomon's telling us when we come to listen. It's better to listen. When we come into corporate worship, our posture should be that of listening sitting under the authoritative word of God, regardless of who's preaching. 
It's not the preacher that brings the authority. It's the word that brings the authority, right? So whether I'm preaching or Pastor Andrew or any of the elders or anybody, the word is the inherent authority, not the person. Now, you can deviate from the authority of the word and be like not preaching right, like preaching false doctrine, and, and then that can be kind of an abuse of power. But what I want to show you, and part of this is um, a little bit of what I did on my doctoral thesis, but I want to show you four examples of preaching in the Bible in corporate worship. So you may ask, well, why do we have preaching today in corporate worship? Because a lot of people are downplaying preaching now. You go to some churches... And there's no preaching. Did I tell you about the Finding Nemo church that my parents went to one time? When they moved to San Francisco, when my dad was a seminary professor, they were looking for churches. And they went to this church, three praise songs, a 15-minute Finding Nemo clip from Disney Pixar, and a three-minute explanation of how Finding Nemo spiritually related to your life in a closing prayer. And my parents called it the Finding Nemo Church. <laughs> this was a Southern Baptist church. Scary enough. Um, and so, more often than not, you're finding that the authority of the Word, the preaching of the Word, the explaining of the Word for God's people, sitting under the authority of the Word, is, is not common much anymore. So I'm going to show you three examples. Two from the Old Testament, two from the New Testament. So... Let's go to Moses and Deuteronomy. You may not know this, but Deuteronomy is actually three expository sermons that Moses preaches. Where are they? They are on the plains of Moab getting ready to go over into the promised land. It's a new generation. The former generation was where? Where was the former generation? They received the law at the base of Mount Sinai. What happened to that generation? They died. This is a new generation that was not there, or they may have been little kids there. So this whole new generation has to be taught what the parents were taught back in Exodus, and that's what Moses does. Moses preaches three sermons on the book of Exodus in the book of Deuteronomy to a new generation. Now you say, well, how do I know that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. 1 through 5. And I'm going to teach you a little bit of Hebrew here because it's important to understand the use of these Hebrew terms. Okay? So Deuteronomy 1. This is how the book of Deuteronomy starts. Everybody there? These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizabab. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edrei. And here's the most important verse. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. You see three things from this passage of scripture about Moses. The first thing that he does in his preaching, what does he do? He preaches the whole Council of 
God's word. What does it say there? In verse 3, in the 40th year, in the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Did Moses get to pick and choose which parts of the Bible he wanted to preach? Did he say, I'm not going to preach that because that's too hard. They may not listen. A lot of pastors are afraid to preach some parts of the Bible because they're either, they don't want to deal with it. It may be too difficult a topic. They feel like people aren't going to really want to take it. What did Paul say? Acts 20, 26 through 27. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Why do you think that our preaching at Emmanuel focuses on, sometimes we'll spend time in a New Testament book, sometimes in an Old Testament book. Sometimes we'll deal with the topic, sometimes we'll deal with another issue. Have I, I'm trying to think back, I've been here 11 and a half years, and I haven't counted up like, like all the different, I mean, I know in kind of my mind all the books that we've gone through, but we, I don't think, I would be bored if I kept <laughs> preaching the same subject over and over again. But a lot of pastors get on a hobby horse. And I'll tell you what happens in India. Here's what happens in India. It's kind of scary. How do they preach in India? Okay? So especially with these guys that can't read. A lot of illiterate pastors. So here's the way they preach in India. And then the, the, the Indian pastors have told me this. The guys that are younger, they said, this is how they preach. They, the pastor prays for a burden. And he'll pray for a burden. And the Lord will give him a burden on what he's supposed to preach. And he'll go find a verse that matches the burden. And he'll read the verse. And then the rest of the sermon, he won't deal with the verse, but he'll talk about the burden that God gave him. And every sermon ends up <laughs> saying the same exact thing. God will bless you if you do good. Almost every sermon. So every sermon's the same message. And I said, so is every sermon the same message? Like, Pretty much. And I'm like, well, are they using different verses? Yeah, but they can always kind of come back to the same topic out of the, whatever verse they pick. And that's not exposing people to the whole counsel of God's word. Second thing Moses does. He clearly explained the text. What does your translation say there in verse 5? He undertook to what? Does your say explain? Anybody else have a different word? Expound. Expound. Explain. It literally means to dig. What do you do when you study the Bible? You dig out its meaning. You excavate it for truth. That's what Moses symbolically is doing. He's taking the word. He's digging deep into it. He's bringing it up to the surface. He's explaining it. He's exposing it. He's practicing ex what we call expository preaching. He's making it clear. He's explaining it. He's, he's going, I wouldn't say verse by verse, but he's basically explaining it in a way that can be understood. He's digging it out. And then also, he's doing it passionately. He's passionately urging the people to respond in obedience. The word undertook there, Moses undertook to explain. Does anybody have a different translation besides undertook? Does it all say undertook? That word undertook means to have a passionate willingness to preach. He's a dying man who knows he's never going to see these people again. He's not going to be able to go into the promised land, so he preaches urgently, passionately, to make sure that they understand. So how does Moses preach to the gathered people? 
preaches the whole counsel of God's word. He preaches expositorily explaining it, and he preaches passionately. Three sermons. Not we're going to go through all three sermons because I'd be here all day. What's their response? What's the response to the preaching of Moses? Well, look at the book of Joshua. They obeyed, and they crossed the Jordan River and conquered the Promised Land. Did they die on Moab not crossing over? No, they obeyed the word of the Lord. So the corporate congregation responded in obedience to the preached word of God by Moses. You never knew Moses was an expository preacher, did you? He was. All right, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8, and let's talk about Ezra. You remember the story of Nehemiah? Goes back, realizes that the wall's torn down. They're going to rebuild the wall. There's still opposition. They finally rebuild the wall. But it's not so important to rebuild the physical wall as rebuilding the nation because they've been disobedient. And so there's this big worship service in chapter 8 where the people gather together for worship. Let's see what happens during the worship service when they gather. Another example of corporate worship. Nehemiah chapter 8. Okay. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understood. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for him. Okay, what's he doing? He's standing up on a pulpit. He's reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy for a half a day. He's just reading scripture. Now, why is he on a platform? So people could see him. There's no sound system back then. He had to be elevated. And then he brings all of his co-pastors up there with him, those bunch of weird names, because... There is no microphone, and he probably got tired reading. I'm like, okay, I got to Leviticus chapter 1. I need to take a break. Somebody else comes in, and they start reading the scriptures, just reading the scriptures for a half a day. Okay, so look at verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it up, all the people stood. They stood in honor of the reading of God's word. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then a bunch of funny names. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. Look back at verse 7. Those, those names... They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So there's the reading and preaching of the scripture. Then there's these priests going out into the small groups to do what? Clearly explain to the people what was being read. That's expository preaching. What is it? You read the text, you explain the text, you urge people to obey the text. Isn't that what Moses did? Read the text, explain the text, urge people to read the text. What does Ezra do? Read the text, explain the text, urge people to obey the text. That's what preaching is. You read the text, you explain the text, you urge people to obey the text. How did they respond to that? Let's keep reading here. Verse 9. 
And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and all the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why are they weeping? It's the first time they've been confronted with the word of God. They're under strong conviction. They know they've sinned. And all they can do is corporately weep under the preaching of God's word. So their response is weeping. So in Moses' response, theirs was obedience. Here it's weeping and mourning and conviction. Okay, let's go to Jesus at Nazareth. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Remember how I talked about the synagogue worship service earlier? What happened at a worship service? There was the reading of prayers, a reciting of prayers. There was reading of scripture. There was singing of psalms. There was the first reading of scripture. Then there was the second reading of scripture followed by what? An expository sermon. Remember that? All right, Jesus is going to go into his hometown synagogue. So let's look at verse 14, Luke chapter 4, I'm sorry, verse 16, Luke 4, 16. Luke 4, 16. <laughs> sorry. This is Jesus. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, so Jesus went to church every week, so be like Jesus and don't miss church. No, I'm just joking. Um, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. <laughs> And he stood up to read. So what's he reading? He's, he's reading from the second scroll, the scroll of Isaiah. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Just so happened to open to Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus reads it. He reads the text, okay? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight of blind to set the liberty of those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Does Jesus read the text? Now, it doesn't tell us here that he explained it or preached it, but the Greek there where it says he began to say, most scholars believe that he began to say, we don't have, we have him reading the scripture, but Luke does not record the actual sermon that Jesus preached. But as was the custom, when you followed up the reading of scripture, there was an expository sermon. So Jesus probably preached an explanation about how Isaiah was talking about him coming as the Messiah. And he says, today, you need to respond. Okay, Moses read the text, explained the text, urged the people to respond to the text. What did Ezra do? Read the text, explained the text. Urge people to respond to the text. What does Jesus do? Reads the text, explains the text, urges people to respond to the text. How did they respond? Go down to verse um, 29. Oh, verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went away. What was their response? Hostility. Okay, so Moses preached the text. Ezra preached the text. 
Jesus preach the text? What about Paul? Well, just like Jesus went into a synagogue and preached in his hometown, Paul goes into the synagogue in Pisidia of Antioch, and he preaches a sermon. And what was going on in the synagogue when Paul goes in there? Reading the scripture, preaching, singing. So Acts chapter 13. I'm not, we're not going to read all of this because it, it, like this whole sermon is pretty much recorded here. But let's pick up in verse thir- um, 13. Now, everybody there, Acts 13, 13? Okay. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on to Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Sounds very similar to Jesus, right? Went into the synagogue, sit down. After the reading from the Law and Prophets, what did I tell you happened? The reading from the Law and Prophets. The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Word of encouragement in the original language means sermon. Do you have an expository sermon on this text you'd like to share, Paul? Sure. I'm not going to turn down a chance to preach an expository sermon on the text. So what does Paul do? Verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then you've got the rest of his sermon. He goes and talks about how all these Old Testament texts point to Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He gets right in their face and says, Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. Look at verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the words of the Lord. What was their response? Holy cow, I've never heard preaching like this. Paul, please come back again. I want to hear this again. Never heard preaching like this. And what happens? The whole town shows up, which assumes that they all went what? Got the friends and brought them back. So, when the word of God is preached, whether it's Moses, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Ezra, whether it's Paul, whether it's Pastor Sean, whether it's Pastor Andrew, whether whoever it is, you can expect different responses. Immediate obedience sometimes. Praise the Lord. Brokenness and mourning and repentance. Hostility and anger. It happened to Jesus. Sometimes excitement and evangelism. I want to go bring people back. So, how do you worship God with awe and reverence when you come into corporate worship? Let's go back to Ecclesiastes. Let's just read verse 1. Here's this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. You must fear God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they're doing is evil. When we come to the house of God, how do we worship Him with honor and reverence? Here are just some thoughts, I think, that come from what we've seen all night. You have a predetermined willingness to listen to God's word and submit yourself under its authority. It's a predetermined willingness. When you walk in, you're like, I am coming in to be under God's word. 
I'm going to have a predetermined willingness to submit myself under it. I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to obey it. If it offends me, if it cuts me, whatever it is, it's God's word that we're hearing today. And what he has to say is the most important, so I'm coming under his authority. You have a hunger to hear the word of God preached. You, you have a hunger for it. And in the process, you don't go through the, whoops, you don't go through the motions of worship with a superficial attitude but worship from the heart. And so let me close with a quote from Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology textbook. I thought this was a good quote. Throughout the history of church, the greatest preachers have been those who have recognized that they have no authority in themselves and have seen their task as being to explain the words of Scripture and apply them clearly to the lives of their hearers. Their preaching has drawn its power not from the proclamation of their own Christian experience or the experience of others, nor from their own opinions, creative ideas, or rhetorical skills, but from God's powerful words. Only the written words of Scripture can give this kind of authority to preaching. So when you come to the house of God, are you in a posture to listen and to have an attitude of not going through the motions but from the heart? Next week, we're going to talk about prayer and vows. That's what Elsie addresses, but we couldn't get it all in tonight. Questions, comments, observations, things you want clarified, things you want to think about. This is a lot of information tonight. So let me just ask you a question. Is preaching important? Why? <laughs> so <coughs> have you ever thought how weird it sounds to your friends <coughs> when you say I'm going to go to that building <laughs> water went down the wrong way you ever thought about how weird it is to tell your friends hey I'm going to go over to that place behind Home Depot or wherever your church is and we're going to sing some songs and then a guy's going to talk for about 40 minutes They're like, okay. Do you think our culture thinks that's weird? Okay. So, and, and we're not picking on lost people. They just don't understand what, what we're doing. But have you ever wondered why God ordained preaching as the means to build up his church? Think about this. Let me just ask you a question. Why couldn't I write my sermon manuscript out, but I do, email it to all you guys and just read it at home? I'm going to ask you the question. Is it the same content? So why don't you just read my sermon manuscript at home on your, by yourself? Wouldn't you get the same of that? Okay. Okay. Okay, so God tells us to gather. Do you ever see any, like all these examples of preaching, was it ever just one-on-one? -on -one? Now, there's one-on-one -on -one examples in the Bible, obviously. Philip the Ethiopian eunuch, witnessing encounters. But the four I showed you, just for example, was it a corporate gathering? Was there a man standing with authority proclaiming God's word? And was there a response to listen to it together? Okay. I think it's extremely hard to 
hard in a home situation to get that worshipful feeling. Okay. You've got too many distractions, too many other things going on around you. Okay. And not only that, but you might not understand it fully too, of what you're reading. Okay. When you gather together in corporate worship and the word of God's being preached, does the Holy Spirit show up in power in the preaching of that word to bring conviction in ways that maybe would not happen if you were by yourself reading it? Okay. 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 So, preaching is important. Do you think today preaching has fallen on hard times in churches? Why? I have my opinions, but I'm not going to spout them because I'm around this stuff all the time. What, what are some of your thoughts? I have a friend that says that she doesn't have to go to church to believe in God. And that she has been burned so many times with different churches that she just doesn't want to trust any other church. I can understand that. And she struggles. Yeah. Her whole family does. And I just, I don't want to, like, I don't know how to do that, but just pray for her. Okay. Yeah. So some people just go to church because they burn bridges. Burn bridges, yeah. And that, those are legitimate when you have wounds and hurts from... Mm-hmm. I think that, that's a real thing. Yeah, Dale? I think there's been a century of... <coughs> from the okay. Um, my grandfather and several of my uncles were pastors, and there are there are seminaries out there that teach that all you need is 52 different sermons. And you just rotate through the sermons. Mm-hmm. And it's just the same thing every year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's not what preaching should be. Preaching should be teaching the Bible. And not just one or two parts of it, mm-hmm. but the whole thing. I may edit this out of the recording. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm going to make a story that people listening may know, but I'll make that decision after the fact. I'll just go ahead. I won't mention any names. I know of a pastor who was getting his sermons off the internet. So there's like Sermon Central. There's all these different Joey, there's places where you can go. You can steal somebody's sermon and preach their illustrations, preach their points and basically or you can listen to somebody's podcast. And So he was doing this for about probably a six or seven month period of time some people in the church started picking up on it and finding these websites where it was going. They were like, man, this is exactly from this website. And so they confronted him on it, and he admitted that he was under stress and he didn't have time to do sermon prep, and it was easier just to download a sermon and preach somebody else's material than his own. Now, I've never done that. Um, I can see the temptation to do that, but there's a word for that. It's called plagiarism. <laughs> it's called theft. So... You know, all of us borrow illustrations, but we give credit, and we cite people, we give credit, but there's no excuse for a, at least in my opinion, for a pastor to borrow somebody else's material. Um, but you see that happen a lot. Um, or you see people not wanting to take the time to fully explain it. Or um, I'll tell you another sermon. I won't mention this guy's name, or maybe I should. We talked about him a few weeks ago. Andy Stanley, is that okay? Okay, so um, I'm not picking on Andy Stanley, even though I am. Um, so we were in seminary during preaching class, 
and we had to watch all different types of sermons. This was this this class was called Methods and Models of Expository Preaching, and we had to watch some really weird, like the the um, the one where the guy dressed up in costume and preached in character was a little goofy. It's kind of like a Saturday Night Live skit. But anyway, um, we, he he picked one of Andy Stanley's sermons, and so we watched it, and. I'm serious, this is about two years ago. He said something like, don't worry if you didn't bring your Bible, it's not that big of a deal. Um, we don't really encourage you to bring your Bibles around here because it's going to be on the screen for you. Um, and then the whole sermon was like conventional wisdom from like psychology journals and like Dr. Phil. And it was like all like just conventional wisdom on how to handle change for like about 30 minutes. And told a bunch of funny stories. And I thought, at least if you're going to do that, find some Proverbs in a weird translation to like support your point. <laughs> kind of like what some other pastors do. Like from the message or something. He didn't even do that. Finally, he got to the end and said, well, here's how it's all going to work out. If you do your part, God will do his part. And then he used Romans 8.28 and said, God will work out all things good for those that love him. You just got to love God more and then he'll work things out for you more. Um, and then it was like a 45 minute, that was the message. And so we, after class, you could tell, like, you know, all my seminary buddies were going to, to lunch, and we're just like, oh my gosh, I can't. But anyway, we asked the professor, I'm like, did you, like, cherry pick that? Did you, like, he's like, no, I just picked the first one that came off his website to show. Um, and so right now there's a huge battle with that particular pastor in how he views the Bible, and... I mean, there's been, in the past month, there's been a lot of controversy over statements he's made. And so when it goes back to, if you do not believe, okay, how much time do I have? Four, one minute, okay. What's the, what's the inerrancy of Scripture? Well, let's start. What's the inspiration of Scripture? It is God-breathed. If it is God-breathed, does it have errors? No, it's in the inerrant Scripture. So it's God-breathed, it's inerrant. If, is it authoritative? Okay. Is it sufficient? Most Christians will give lip service to, oh yeah, it's inspired. I believe it's inspired. I believe it's without errors. Authority? I may or may not want to live under it. Sufficient? Yeah, there's other things that we can bring into the worship service, but the Word of God's not sufficient. So your fundamental understanding of the Word of God will impact how you preach, how you teach, how you do church, how you do ministry. If you don't have a high view of God's word, it's going to impact everything else in the life of your church. Um, and so, I would submit to you that we probably have 4th and 5th graders in this church that know more theology and doctrine than maybe a lot of adults in some other churches. And that's no fault against those other adults, it's just those churches aren't teaching what our kids are learning. And so, um, we just got to make sure that, that the authority of God's word is front and center. And as Ecclesiastes says here, it's better to listen, to be under the authority of God's word when we come into the house of worship. So I've done enough preaching tonight. Uh, maybe I should stop. Are there any other comments? I'm kind of passionate about this subject. I think you asked, you know, why is preaching on going on the back burner? And you've said it already a couple times, but... Second um, Timothy four three for time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have it in your, yeah. they accumulate themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Yeah. And so you and I can preach all day long, but if there's not people that want to listen yeah. and do 
Yeah. That, that it goes on deaf ears. Yeah. And people don't like that. Because people, when you tell people that this is wrong, what yeah. you are thinking is wrong according to scripture, they don't think that. Yeah. What were you saying, Jerry? There's, I'm not totally There's Christians uh, that don't want to say you're going to go to hell or, or if you're not saved. Or this is not the only way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because there's some people who don't want to hear that. Well, guys, I could be very discouraged if I got up to preach every time and worried about what people were going to think. Yeah. Um, I've kind of lost, I just got, got rid of that a long time ago, uh, maybe like my first sermon here. Because um, I'm serious, like, if you guys remember, like, the sermon that you guys called me, I, like, threw down the hell gauntlet to see if, like, there was going to be any um, red flags. And, like, somebody came to me and said, we haven't heard a sermon about hell. I wasn't about hell, but I would mentioned, like, hell in the sermon. I think it was Jack Hazen because, like, we haven't heard about hell. No. Throwing the gauntlet down just to see, just to feel the waters out there. You guys can always vote, vote that you don't want me to come. But um, here's what I, here's what I, I, I believe, um, what Jesus says. Um, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. Basically, what he's saying is. The sheep, if you're, the sheep will hear the voice of the shepherd. So when Jesus' words are preached, his true sheep will hear, and they will come and follow. Those that are not his sheep won't, and I can't control that. So the closer I preach Jesus' word, the more confidence I have the sheep will hear his voice. And my responsibility is to feed the sheep and make sure the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd so they can follow him. Can't be concerned about if the goats are entertained. That's not my job. I'm, I'm, I'm being honest. My responsibility is to feed the sheep and make sure the sheep hear the voice of the shepherds. So they will come and follow him. And there's sheep out there that aren't sheep yet, but they will become sheep when they hear the gospel and they respond. So anyway, let's pray. It's 8 o'clock, and you probably heard enough of me tonight. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Lord, really to look at your word, and it's convicting. That when we come together in corporate worship, it's not so much about what we want, what we say, what our demands are. It's we come, guard our steps. We come in fear. We come with a posture to listen, to, to sit under the authority of the word, Lord. And um, Lord, I thank you that we have a church family that, that I think has that hunger, that has that desire. Lord, help it to just continue to thrive. And Lord, help us all to be submissive to your word. Um, every time we walk through these doors, help us to have an attitude that we are under the word of the Lord as our authority. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.